Well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you here. Um, so uh, we're in the middle, well, we're not in the middle, but we're beginning the Advent season, and uh, we want to uh, attend to uh, the just ratcheting up our hearts about uh, what Advent is for us. It's the beginning, it's the birth, the beginning of the narrative of the birth account of Jesus Christ, and what that means, but you know, you can you can know intellectually what something means, but it doesn't mean that it's because it's in your heart that it's in, in your head that it's in your heart. There's we all we all know certain things that should move us, but we know that they should move us, but they don't move us. And so let's make the Advent season a time where it moves us uh, and changes us. Uh, and uh, helps to restore us over into the image of Jesus Christ. So with that, though, I'm still going to lace in through the Advent season this idea of recalibrating because it takes on a whole different meaning in the Advent season about what it means to recalibrate our heart, our faith, our life, to ratchet up how we ought to be as believers, how we ought to live before Christ, so I spent a lot of time talking about repentance and what it means to guard our heart and the constancy that uh, needs to be a part of every Christian life. So in light of that then, um, I'm going to be talking about the constancy in terms of dedication to and the cost of following Jesus in the kingdom of God. So we're going to be talking about that to the, because I want you to know, and you probably know this anyway, that Jesus was identified numerous times throughout the scriptures as a true son of Israel, who was the obedient son, the faithful son, that unlike Adam, who was not the faithful son, Jesus was the faithful son. And because he was the faithful son, through him, the kingdom of God re-entered into the world in order to make the world over and to rescue people who lived in sin and darkness. So this constancy then, when it comes to the kingdom and, the co and, and what it means to follow Jesus is a non-negotiable for all of us. That if we're going to be constant, if we're going to recalibrate our life, if our life is going to have some kind of vitality and excitement to it, then it means that we have to have a, an overarching purpose. And that purpose means that we exist for the kingdom of God and his purpose for us within that kingdom. What do you think or why do you think most people live today? What is the purpose for which they live? I'm just raise your hand and just tell me what you think. Why do most people live today in the world in which they find themselves? What is their purpose? <coughs> what do they seek? What do they want? Where do they spend their time? What is that? What would you say, just based on your observation? What are people after? Yeah, Bonnie. Mm -hmm. money. Family, money, power, okay. Love. 
What's that? Or, what'd you say, Phil? Happiness. Happiness. Okay. What else? Anything else? Peace. Peace. Okay. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. All right, good. Fulfillment. What else? Joy. Yeah. Although, uh, and that is, I think there is, uh, I think that's an important word. It seems to be nowadays an almost archaic word. Not too many people use the word joy. In fact, they usually use or substitute the word happiness for joy. They are not the same thing. Um, so, uh, do you ever encounter people where you feel as if they're kind of striving for the wrong thing? <clears throat> I mean, they're working really hard <laughs> to do a really wrong thing. Do you, do you encounter people like that where you are? And if you try and get in the way of that, what is usually their response? Yeah, well, I get out of my way, and if you don't get out of my way, I'll run you over and I'll do what I want to do, right? Um, and that's when usually they want to graduate from the school of hard knocks, summa cum laude. Right? So, what's that? They're called teenagers. Oh, they're called teenagers. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to have some advanced adolescents out there as well, I think. that. Uh, yeah. So... God, in his economy, has created us in, a way, in such a way that, that our overarching purpose isn't for pleasure, hedonism, power, selfishness. In fact, we aren't even constructed to do those kinds of things. In fact, when we do pursue those kinds of things, it runs counter to our very nature and is cancerous to our soul. Most people that you know who are selfish or power-driven, are they nice people to be around? They are not. Um, are they happy people even, let alone joyful? They are not, right? So it runs counter to their nature and to how God has created them. So what I want to say this morning is that most of us who are believers are amphibians. And what I mean by that is not the literal amphibian. I mean that we have actually two natures in us. And part of that nature is to be like a son or child of God. And the other part of that is to still have the element of the old man or the old self living very well within us. And those two war against each other in the world in which we find ourselves. And we should be less in the way of amphibians, where we have these two natures, where we live both on land and in water. And we just have to, let, we just have to choose where we're going to live and what part is going to be, what place is going to be the most important place for us. Remember what Jesus said in the book of Revelations. You shall either be hot or cold, but if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. So for the believer, the mature believer, the person who wants to grow, there has to be this ascent 
to becoming like Christ so that we can do the things that Jesus would do if he were us in the here and now. And if we try to appease both natures, both the world and the heavenly kingdom, it is impossible to do. For we will love the one and hate the other, or we will hate the one and love the other. This has been the battle for most believers and most churches throughout the whole history of the church. And it's an area in our lives where, in order to recalibrate our life, we have to pay attention to. So I have three axioms. You know what an axiom is? An axiom is a rule or a law that's usually universal in terms of its construct. But I have three axioms for you, especially for our faith. But these axioms are true about anything in life. But it's especially true when it comes to our faith. The first one is this. We live for and serve that which we love most. We live for and serve that which we love most. So whatever you love most, you arrange your life around it. And you serve it. You attend to it because you want it, because you love it. So if I were to ask you or us this morning, what is it that we live for and serve? What is our first love in life? Honestly. It's sort of like, you know, you know the, uh, the Sunday school question, you know, like, why did the chicken cross the road? Jesus, you know, it's a, that's always the answer, right? You know, well, no, I'm, I, want, I want us to be honest this morning. And I want to ask ourselves the question, if we were to list out our loves, which of those loves would be at the top of the list in terms of importance? I'm sorry? Self. Well, that's probably largely true. Even though many of us, including myself, might be blind to that, uh, we tend to be very self-serving, self-obsessed, self-interested, self-determining in in terms of those kinds of things. Self oftentimes is at the top of the list. Children. Children. So children should be a priority, They should be very high at the list, but there are many marriages that have been destroyed because children occupy the top of the list when the marriage, the spouses, should have been at the top of the list. Right? So it's a matter of oftentimes rearranging what it is that we love the most. And so I think if we want to recalibrate our life, we should ask ourselves the question, what are my primary loves? In in what sequence have I arranged them honestly in my life? And is that the sequence that should be there? Second axiom. We love most what we trust the most. We love most what we trust the most. Because that trust brings some kind of security, whether it's emotional or psychological or physical security. 
we love most. So what do you trust the most? Do you trust the Lord? If you were put to the test, would you trust the Lord? By the way, we saw a very interesting movie this past weekend uh, called uh, Shift, which is basically, it's a, it's a modern-day kind of rendition of the story of Job. So it asks some important questions. But in that particular film, his trust was put to the test. And he had, to, he had to fight, he had to punch through a whole host of things that wanted to rob him of his trust. So if you were honest, what do you trust more than anything else? Not what you ought to trust, but what do you really trust? Do you trust yourself more than anything else? Number three, we love what is worthy of our love. We love what we believe to be worthy of our love. We will not love something that we think is unworthy. We will only love something that we believe is worthy. So if you were to list out a bunch of things that, are, that you consider to be worthy, worthy of sacrifice, worthy of effort, worthy of resources, what would they be? I think these are three really important questions for recalibrating our life. And I think intellectual and emotional honesty is essential if we're to ever get these to work for us as they should. So, we live for and serve that which we love the most. We love most what we trust the most. We love what is worthy of our love. And by the way, you know the word worship, that the root word for the word worship is worthy. So, we love that which we consider to be worthy Therefore, it also means we worship that which we consider to be worthy. And so for many people, Christians included, worship is misplaced, misaligned. So if we're going to be honest, if we say that we want to grow, if we say that we want to please the Lord, if we say that we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before him in the, before the great throne in heaven, um, will it be clear that what we worshipped was what was really worthy of our worship? So we can know what we love, trust, and consider to be worthy by examining where we spend our time, how we spend our time, what we spend our time on, and with whom we spend our time with. And you might add time and resources. Where we spend our time and resources, 
how we spend our time and resources. What we spend our time and resources on. With whom do we spend our time and resources with? These are, I think, sort of foundational kinds of principles and questions. So, I would assume that if I bumped into any one of you and I asked you the question directly, do you want to grow in your relationship with Christ? Do you want to become everything that Jesus would have you be? I am sure that everybody in this room would say to me, yes, I'm sure that's the case. But in order to get to that, I think that we have to be diligent enough to, to, to employ some of these kinds of questions and principles in our lives so that we can find those areas that really aren't quite what they ought to be. And they aren't quite that way for the believer because you and I, whether we realize it or not, and I'm hearkening back to last week, we are fighting this intense spiritual battle that our ancient enemy, a.k.a. Satan, is clearly at work in this world and in each of our lives as much as he possibly can. And he will try to keep that old man and that old self as healthy as he possibly can. And so when he does, we play into his hands. And so, you know, with the men's group I meet with on Tuesday morning, uh, we were talking about a little bit about, uh, you know, being at war. And uh, I think someone raised the, the question and said, it's interesting, isn't it? That Ephesians 6 in particular, which is the great passage on what we are fighting a war against, who our enemy really is, that that, is, that passage, as important as it is, I mean, understand that the Son of God had to come to earth and sacrifice himself and pay our penalty in order to free us from Satan and his dominion over our life. Now you tell me why the Ephesians 6 passage isn't an iconic passage that should, have been a, that should be a regular part of how we think and understand our faith and our church. I mean, if it involved Jesus to that degree, why would it not be a passage that would be a prevailing passage in the conversation of the church on a regular basis? I mean, we all have our little favorite verses, do we not? And they're on our phone, and they're on our walls, and we put them all kinds of places so that we are reminded they are iconic passages. Psalm uh, 23, the Beatitudes. But interestingly, not Ephesians chapter 6, about how we are at war. And that war intends 
If it can't destroy us, then it will compromise us. So I sent to most of you this past week the passage from Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, where the Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in your relationship with the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your own, his. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's no hypothetical here. There's no like, if the devil has some schemes against you, that does not exist. It's a given against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, you wouldn't think that if you talk to most Christians. Because for them, any problems we have are always flesh and blood problems. They're always people. But that's not, but it's, it's, those people are being influenced against these people here, these entities. Those, that, those flesh and blood people are being influenced to be problematic for us. And they are, we wrestle against the rulers, against the, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So it's not just some second-rate demon that's running around. We are wrestling against the person who controls the demons. The authorities who have oversight of them. We are wrestling against them. Him. And all of that would be way overwhelming to everyone in this room. If it were not for the protection, and the intervention. In the theological term, we call it God's common grace. God's common grace protects us from so much of that. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, but here's the thing, and this is where I want to go next for the next few minutes. Jesus Christ rescues us from that. See, look, with Jesus Christ coming 2,000 years ago as an infant child, as a baby who, per per Nate's uh, uh, sharing from Philippians 2, Jesus was so committed to you and me that he laid aside much of his godly attributes. He didn't destroy it. He didn't kill it. He didn't lose it. He laid it aside. He could have always come back to it and later did come back to it, but he laid his side, his, much of his godly nature, in order to become you and me so that he could be the sacrificial sin for our sin. And by doing that, In dying for our sins, he made possible this massive and qualitative paradigm shift. This massive and qualitative paradigm shift where 
We were living in darkness, in despair, in hopelessness, and through Christ. We go from there to something wholly other. So, the Apostle Paul's radical and confident assertion of hope for rescue comes from this. He has delivered us. And so if you look in uh, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us, Ruami, rescued. So another word that maybe is a better word, he rescued us from the domain, exousia. The domain is... Um, um, in fact, if some of you have different translations, the ESV says domain. The New American Standard Bible says domain. The NIV says dominion. The RSV says power. The NRSV says power. And the KJV says power. So in essence, it's a place or realm where darkness is the localized prevailing power. He has delivered us or rescued us from the domain from that realm where darkness is the localized and prevailing power. So, the Apostle Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. And in this locality of the world, he is darkness. And he has a ruling element over this world that influences not only the world, but you and I to a certain degree as well. He has delivered us, Ruami, rescued us from the domain of exousia, of darkness, Scotus, and transformed us, transferred us. He moves us from darkness into light. The work of Christ on the cross literally moves us from darkness, from that domain, into his kingdom of light. We are transferred. We are in this hopeless place of darkness. And now we're in this place of, of hope and joy in his kingdom with him in his light. And that is with his beloved son, Jesus. So there's this massive paradigm shift from hopelessness and darkness to hope and to light. Isaiah, all the way back, 600 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people who walked, that is, who in a way of life, in darkness, have seen a great light, and that great light is Christ. Those who dwelt or were rooted or live in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so I have that colored because <clears throat> this is actually pretty sophisticated writing. <clears throat> so if you look at the blues, the people who walked, walked and dwelt. In the green, darkness and darkness. Um, they are in opposition. Those two phrases are in opposition. And then you have the red and the green. Uh, and the, and the uh, red and the, and the yellow. Those are two oppositional uh, passages as well. So those have seen a great light, a land of deep darkness. They're, they're opposites of each other. And so there's this transfer. There's this, this radical change from one place that is the opposite to the other place. And that 
has been given and made possible to you and to me. And whether we see that darkness or not is irrelevant. It's there. We've certainly seen evidence for it. One of the great theologians, I'll see if I can remember what he said, said the only bit of theology that is empirically proven is, that is empirically uh, observable is uh, the depravity of man. I mean, it's pretty clear, given the right opportunity, what human beings can do to each other. So the biblical metaphor for darkness is this. The evil one, Satan, sinfulness and brokenness, lostness and confusion, deception and evil deeds hidden, fear and hopelessness, vulnerability and helplessness, judgment, death and destruction. So when the Apostle Paul is using the word darkness, he intends to bring into bear all of that meaning there, which is pretty overwhelming. But the metaphor of light is holiness and a holy God, purity and goodness, direction and purpose, openness, goodness and illumination, confidence and hope, wholeness and healing, forgiveness, improved quality of life, and shalom, that is peace. So this transfer has taken place for you and for me. And it's been it's it's been taken it has taken place because Jesus said, "I came that they might have life, and have it abundantly." Some of you were born into a Christian home, and you can't remember a time when you were never a Christian. But others remember when you were not a Christian before you came to faith, and you remember the train wreck that you called your life. You remember the pain and the hopelessness, the despair. You remember the shroud of darkness, the dark cloud hanging over your life. And when you came to faith in Christ, how that dissipated. And there was this transfer from that kind of darkness to hope and to light, to joy and to peace. Now here's the thing. The Christian exists to give, rescue, and to build the kingdom we exist that through Christ, the unbeliever may have life and have it abundantly. This is our purpose. This is our purpose. There isn't a person here who is a believer for whom this is not true. In the same way that Jesus came to have life and have it abundantly, Christ gives us life to rescue, to build his kingdom and to give back in the only way that he can give. It means, and going back to even a few, few weeks further back to Ephesians 2.10, for, 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is our purpose. Everyone here has been specifically designed. Everyone here has been given particular experiences to be able to do things that maybe no other person here can do. And that God has, in his providence, laid out our lives so that we are supposed to encounter certain people to be able to do and say for them that no one else can do. 
And it's that way that we produce fruit. I mean, understand that in Romans 8.29 it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Everyone here is destined to be conformed already and not yet to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And as the Son of Jesus Christ, to do the things that Jesus would do if he were us in the here and now. And that has been, that is, that remains, that will always be the mandate for the believer since time immemorial until the Lord comes back. Our responsibility is to do the things that Jesus would do if he were us in the here and now. And you may say, I have no idea what that means. Then talk to me. I have no idea what that means. Then pray. I have no idea what that means. Then look at those three axioms and allow the the answers to those questions to take you places where you might not like to go otherwise. So just as Jesus sacrificially lived to counter the work of darkness and Satan, so we should live to counter them as well. We are here to counter his work. So, I'm just skipping over some notes here, but I want to go towards this last one that's entitled The Rich Young Ruler. And I've spoken on this numerous times. And here was a person who approached Jesus who basically wanted Jesus to give him a thumbs up about his life. He really was a good guy. He really did observe everything that he was supposed to observe. He was flawless when it came to obedience to the law. But there was one thing that he couldn't do, that he didn't know how to do, and that was to unhinge himself from not having things, but from those things having him. And that's really the shift that should take place in the life of every believer. In his case, it was material things. But for any one of us, it could be anything. It could be a grudge. It could be a particular sin. It could be self-image issues that really limit our ability to do what it is that we're supposed to do. So we read here in this text, when Jesus heard this, he looked at him. This is from, uh, this is a composite of the different uh, synoptic gospels, all three of which tell this story. So I took the elements and blended them in this particular uh, text I have for you. When Jesus heard this, he looked at him and loved him, loved him. Jesus loved him. So as he came and said, look, I've, I've been obedient to the Mosaic law, to the law of Moses. I've, I've done everything I can. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. He said, if you want to be perfect, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And the man could not follow Jesus because those things were an anchor. They had him. He didn't have them. And there are many here who can't follow Jesus, who can't 
fulfill their purpose that Christ has for them because there's something or things that have us. They have us. So I'm going to go backwards and conclude with this slide here where it talks about constancy and purpose and calling, being victorious over sin and Satan. And there's two columns I have here, and it says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But let's put that passage next to this passage. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is marked out before us. That unless we do the second column, the first column's not going to happen. At least qualitatively, it's not going to happen. Because those things have us. The weight and sin which clings so closely, it has us. So, axiom number one. We live for and serve that which we love most. What do you love the most? Really, what do you love the most? Axiom number two. We love most what we trust the most. Really, what do we trust the most? Number three. We love what is worthy of our love. What do we consider to be most worthy in our life? If we take the time to answer these questions, if we rearrange the list of priorities that should be a part of every one of them, then you can disentangle yourself from that sin and you can faithfully run out, run the race that is marked out before you. You and I can faithfully be the kind of workmanship that, God, that Christ has prepared for us to do. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus Christ made all this possible. And that was the beginning so let everyone in this room, in the same way that he begun, as he was born again, let every one of us today choose this day, in whatever way we can, to be born anew, to recalibrate our life over into the image of Jesus Christ. What better way to honor and glorify him during the Advent season? than that.